Welcome to the Brady Haywood Podcast, the podcast where we look at engineering failures and disasters. One of the most important bridges in structural engineering is the Quebec Bridge. The events surrounding this bridge's construction and collapse give us a vivid illustration of the role of human factors in engineering disasters. This bridge teaches us that if we really want to understand the causes of engineering failure, we need look no further than ourselves. One of the really nice things about doing a podcast is that you get a chance to meet people that you wouldn't ordinarily meet. And one of the people I've had the pleasure of meeting is an engineer by the name of Susan Jakes. And to start this episode, I'd like to tell you a story about Susan. So Susan is Canadian, and she studied engineering in university in Edmonton. And her story is probably very similar to any of the rest of us that studied engineering, or indeed any other discipline. She sat exams over the years and graduated in June 1993. Except Susan doesn't call it a graduation, she calls it a convocation. And it was pretty much like any other uni graduation. She got dressed up, her parents flew in, she walked out on stage in front of her class and was presented with her degree and everyone clapped and there was a big celebration. So nothing particularly different or interesting about any of this so far. But it's what Susan did some months earlier that is really interesting. Because it's something that very few people in the world get an opportunity to do. So the 27th of March 1993 started off like any other day. Susan got up in the morning, she got dressed up a little, she'd call it business attire, but she can't really remember what she wore, but it wasn't flashy, and it wasn't casual clothes either, like she'd wear if she was going to some lectures. So she gets organised and she heads to a building at her university, and she joins her classmates who are waiting in an anteroom. Now she remembers feeling pretty giddy and making jokes and carrying on a little, and as she says, she was a 22-year-old that didn't really care. And then she got reprimanded. And she was told to show a little respect. And this is because she was about to attend a very important but very secretive and private ceremony. And nobody from her class really had any idea what was going to happen once they entered into this ceremony. And the only people who were allowed to attend were Susan and her classmates or someone who attended one of these ceremonies in the past. No one else could go. So unlike the graduation, there wasn't going to be any big celebration. Susan's parents weren't flying into town. And there was going to be no big fanfare afterwards. But here's the thing. In the short space of time between Susan being giddy and being reprimanded and the completion of this ceremony, she found that her whole perspective had changed. The way she thought about engineering had changed, and more importantly, the way she thought about herself as an engineer had greatly changed. And this ceremony stayed with her, and she says it shapes how she thinks and acts as an engineer to this very day. So what was this secret squirrel ceremony? And why did it have such a big impact on a, on a 23-year-old engineer? Well, to answer these questions, we need to go back in time, back to the late 1800s, when people started talking about bridging the St. Lawrence River in Quebec, Canada. This was going to be a huge challenge. At its narrowest point, this river was 3.2 kilometres wide and it was up to 58 metres deep. And the water was fast flowing, so it was as fast as about 14 kilometres per hour in place. And it had a tidal range of 5 metres as well. So here you have a wide, deep, fast-moving river with a tidal range. And then add to all of these channels what actually happened here in winter. Ice would become stuck in this channel and then it would start to pile up. And it would pile up to about a height of 15 metres. So this was going to be a hell of a bridge to deal with all these challenges. And it was. It was a huge and very iconic engineering project. And the bridge that was finally constructed in 1917 is still the longest cantilever bridge in the world. So how does a project of this size kick off? 
Well, the idea of a bridge had been around since the 1850s, and it was in 1887 that the Quebec Bridge Company was formed. So their job was to select a site for the bridge, to raise the money for it, and then to engage the companies that actually would go out and design and construct this thing. Now, the team that would ultimately deliver this bridge met at an American Society of Civil Engineers meeting in Quebec in 1897. So at this meeting was the Quebec Bridge Company's principal engineer, a guy by the name of Edward Hoare, and he met the chief engineer of a company called the Phoenix Bridge Company. Now, the Phoenix Bridge Company were based in Phoenixville, which is outside New York in the U.S., now, this meeting, though, wasn't without controversy. So the Phoenix Bridge Company offered to complete the initial design of the bridge for free. So no fee. But there was going to be one proviso. They'd do the initial design for free if they were awarded the actual contract for the bridge's final design and construction. Now, think about that for a moment. Phoenix were going to do the initial design of the bridge for free if they were selected as the winning proposal from all proposals submitted. That sounds very fair, doesn't it? Mm. And this is exactly what happened. Six proposals were submitted, and surprise, surprise, the Phoenix Bridge Company's proposal was selected as the winning proposal, and it was described as the best and cheapest. Now, at that meeting, there was someone else who plays a central role in this story, and that was Theodore Cooper. So Cooper was an eminent bridge engineer, and he offered his services as a consultant to this project. And over time, Cooper would actually be selected as the chief consultant for the project, which meant he oversaw all its technical aspects. And it was Cooper who picked the winning proposal, and it was him who described the Phoenix Bridge Company's proposal as the best and cheapest. And he got to do this because Cooper's reputation as a bridge engineer was immense, and it's worth running through some of his achievements, so you get a feeling for the sort of expertise he brought to this project, and why the Quebec Bridge Company were really pretty desperate to get him involved. So he'd been a bridge engineer for years, and then he'd set up his own consulting practice in New York in 1879. Now, not only did he have great practical expertise and experience, but he'd also made a pretty big academic contribution to bridge design. So he'd developed a methodology for dealing with railway loads and bridges, and he'd written papers on the use of steel as a bridge material, and he'd prepared general specifications for iron and steel bridges. So now, around 60 years of age, Cooper felt he was at the top of his game. And he felt that working on the Quebec Bridge would be a fantastic way to end his career. And he's quoted as saying, quote, My chief interest in this work is to obtain a work which I feel will crown my professional career of over 40 years. Unquote. But my favourite story about Cooper is what happened to him when he was an inspector during the construction of the Eds Bridge at St. Louis. And this really was a landmark structure and that it had pioneered the use of steel in bridges. And one of the strangest stories of Cooper's involvement in the bridge's construction was from an entry in his log from the 2nd of December 1873. And this is the entry. Quote, The inspector, present writer, tripped on an unbalanced plank on outside of Joint 30 Rib C Span 3 at 11am and fell to the river below. A distance measured this afternoon and found to be 90 feet. Escaped uninjured, excepting a stiffness resulting from the shock. Unquote. So Cooper had actually tripped on the bridge and fell 90 feet, which is around 27 metres into the river. And he remembers he almost plunged to the bottom of the river and then he swam back up to the surface. And when he did, he was still holding a pencil he'd been using before the fall. They fished him out of the river and into a boat. And then he went off and changed his clothes. And in a short time, he was back at the office like absolutely nothing had happened. So this guy was an interesting character. And when it came to his engagement on the Quebec Bridge, there were a few things there that were, to say the very least, very interesting as well. So he was based in New York, and he was planning on staying there. But the site was over 800 kilometres away. But despite this distance, he accepted the role of inspecting the steel fabrication and erection of the bridge. 
In other words, he accepted a job that made him responsible for what was happening on site, despite the fact that he wasn't going to be on site. Now, another interesting aspect was that he insisted on having full control of the project from a technical perspective. So he was going to be in charge of setting, essentially, the technical rules for the job. And the Phoenix Bridge Company, who were going to design and construct the bridge, they were going to have to conform to these rules. And one of the things they had to sort out was who was going to peer review Cooper's work. Now, when you hear what I'm about to say, you're going to be saying, no, 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 this is not good. But when it was suggested to Cooper that his work should be subject to peer review, in other words, someone else was going to be checking it, Cooper refused. He refused to have anyone check his work. He claimed, and this is a pretty incredible quote from the man himself, that having someone peer reviewing his work, quote, puts me in the position of a subordinate, which I cannot accept, unquote. So the Quebec Bridge Company simply dropped the review requirement. And that meant from this point forward, Cooper's work would essentially go unchecked. If Cooper messed up, there would be no one to catch it. In a way, the project was going to proceed on the assumption that Cooper was infallible, that he just didn't make mistakes. Now add to this situation the fact the project was in a poor financial position. And this actually resulted in Cooper agreeing to charge only half his usual fee. Now once he made this decision, he lost the ability to hire appropriate staff. So here we have Cooper in total control, with no one checking his work, and he can't hire the right staff because of financial pressures. Now he did hire one person who plays a critical role in this story. He hired a young guy by the name of Norman McClure as his on-site inspector. So McClure was going to be Cooper's eyes and ears on-site. And this was going to be a hugely important role, because due to these financial pressures we've talked about already, and because of Cooper's ill health, Cooper didn't actually visit the site after construction of the superstructure of the steel part of the bridge began. And this meant, essentially, that young McClure gets thrust into the essential role in the building of this bridge. So let's recap on this team. You've got the Quebec Bridge Company responsible for getting the bridge built. Then there was Cooper, who was the technical guy, so he's making all the overarching decisions as to how this bridge was going to be designed and constructed. And as we know, his work and his decisions would go unchallenged, and he'd remain in New York over 800 kilometers away from the bridge. Then we had the Phoenix Bridge Company, and they're going to design and construct the bridge to Cooper's satisfaction. And their key design personnel were going to remain largely based in Phoenixville, outside New York, which is also 800 kilometers away from the bridge. And then we end up with young McClure, based on site, who's going to be Cooper's eyes and ears. So with all that in mind, let's head off to Quebec. So construction began in 1900 and they worked on the bridge's foundations and piers and abutments and then they began construction of the superstructure in July 1905. And the superstructure is the steel portion of the bridge that actually spans the river. So this is a cantilever bridge design, which means it's built over the piers and stretches out over the river holding itself up. So there's no temporary formwork beneath it. And it's probably worth googling the structure to see what I mean if you're unfamiliar with cantilever construction. But the key point is this, that the bridge stretches out over the river as it's being construction and it supports itself as it does so. So as we said, work on the steel street infrastructure began in 1905 and it was the following year when they discovered a very significant issue. The bridge was heavier than anticipated. It weighed more in real life than predicted by the engineering calculations. In other words, the bridge was heavier in real life than it was on paper. So to really understand this, we have to break it down a little bit. So this bridge is constructed from separate members, and these members are joined together. And each of these members aren't one single piece of steel. They're actually made up of lots of pieces of steel that are riveted together. They're what we call latticed members. And these latticed members are put together or are fabricated off-site, and then they're brought to site so they can be lifted into position by a crane. And this is how the weight problem was discovered. These steel members arriving on site were actually heavier than expected. Now... Norman McClure brought this issue to Cooper's attention and they found a problem. The calculation of the bridge's self-weight was wrong. 
And this was a problem because a bridge's first job is to hold itself up. It has to be strong enough to hold up its own weight, its own self-weight. And this threw up the question, was this bridge actually strong enough to hold up its own weight, given that it was heavier than expected? And this weight increase was pretty big. The bridge was 18% heavier in real life than it was on paper. And this meant that it was going to be more highly stressed than it was on paper. And if it was more highly stressed, then it was at a greater risk of collapse. So Cooper sat down to work out if this extra weight really was an issue. And he calculated that because of this weight, the stresses in the bridge had increased by 7%, which in engineering terms is quite a bit. Now, to put it in perspective, after this bridge collapsed, which we'll get to, there was a Royal Commission to determine what had happened. And the Royal Commission concluded that this weight issue was sufficient to have the bridge condemned. Right there and then. But that wasn't the conclusion that Cooper reached. He decided that these higher stresses weren't a problem, and he concluded that the design was adequate and construction could proceed. They were going to keep going despite the higher stresses. Now let's talk a little about the background of this decision by Cooper, because when you hear this background, his decision starts to become a little mind-boggling. Now what makes Cooper's decision to continue after the Selford Airwork was discovered really extraordinary was that the working stresses adopted for the bridge's design at its onset were already very high. They were considerably higher than the norm at the time of construction. So if you're not an engineer, let me just explain what we mean by working stresses, and this is obviously going to be a pretty simplified explanation. So when you're designing a bridge, you have to decide how stressed you want to let that bridge become. And this stress level is called the working stress. So if you don't want the bridge to be very stressed, then you set the working stress to be very low, and that means the risk of the bridge falling is also very low. But there's a price to pay for these low working stresses, and that price is that you need to put more steel into the bridge. You need to make the bridge members bigger. You need to put more cross-sectional area into them because this larger cross-sectional area of the members results in lower stresses in that member. So now you have a bridge that's more expensive because of these low working stresses. Now you can take a different approach. You can decide that you're willing to tolerate the bridge becoming more highly stressed. So in that case you'd set the working stresses higher and this would result in smaller members with less cross-sectional areas. So you have less steel in the bridge so it's a cheaper bridge but you have a more increased risk of collapse because of this. So this is really all about compromise. You need to set the working stress at a level that gives you a very, very low risk of failure, but provides a bridge that isn't too heavy and expensive. And nowadays, all these working stresses are prescribed in design codes, and many codes don't even use them. They've moved away from the working stress concept completely. But the principle is ultimately the same, which is really all we're interested in in this story. So when Cooper went out to select the working stresses for the Quebec Bridge, he selected a very high number. Now, to give you some comparison, Cooper's stresses were higher than modern American institutions of steel construction allowable stresses. But Cooper was picking these really high stresses back over 100 years ago. And this is at a time when steel was a relatively new construction material. Now, when Cooper proposed these stresses, a bridge engineer from the Department of Railways and Canals actually raised concerns about how big they were. And Cooper just dismissed the concerns. And because Cooper was this technical guru and technical god, and because it was him who was dismissing these concerns, he was the one who was listened to. And the high working stresses prevailed. Okay, so let's go back for a moment. Cooper, from the outset, selects these really high working stresses, and then when the project is actually underway, he discovers there's been a screw-up in the calculations of the bridge self-weight, which means the stresses are even higher. And despite all this, Cooper still lets work continue. And it gets worse. It would turn out that the industry didn't really have a lot of knowledge about these latticed bridge members and how to actually go about designing them. So there was no really well-accepted methodology for the design. So there was no well-accepted ability to actually work out how strong these, these members were. Now, after the collapse, the Royal Commission would find that if you were an engineer engaged in the design of one of these types of bridge members, then an engineer would find, quote, 
little or nothing in scientific textbooks or periodicals to assist in his judgment. Unquote. So Cooper was willing to accept uncharacteristically high working stresses, even though there was little technical guidance and no practical precedence in the design of these sort of members. And then on top of this, no testing of these members was undertaken either. So there were no physical tests to determine how strong these members were in practice. There was no physical confirmation carried out to ensure the design was actually correct. Now, funding was an issue in almost every aspect of this job. And to give you a feel for how big an issue it was, the Royal Commission would say, quote, virtually every conflict between safety and economy was resolved in favour of economy, unquote. But the crazy thing was, even when the Phoenix Bridge Company actually did secure funding for testing, Cooper turned it down. He still said there was no need for testing. And the reason he gave was, he said it was because of time constraints at this point. So Cooper appears to have decided that despite the bridge's record-breaking length, he was confident that the actual performance of this bridge could be determined by theoretical means alone. And this view was also shared by the Phoenix Bridge Company. Now, after the collapse, testing was done on on one-third scale models of the lattice members, and they were found to fail explosively under loading. And they failed at a lot lower loads than the Phoenix Bridge Company's calculations suggested they would. So Cooper selects very high working stresses for the design, despite there being no technical precedent for doing so. And he allows these high stresses, despite there being little theoretical guidance on how to work out how strong these members were. And then he decides that despite there being very little technical guidance, there was no need for testing of these complicated members. And then he discovers the bridge was heavier than it was in theory, which makes the stresses even higher. And he lets the work continue despite this. It really is almost like he decided that the rules of physics and engineering didn't apply to him anymore. He took a hop, skip and jump out of the standard practice. And he seems to have done so with no technical basis whatsoever. So our question is, why would he do this? was going on in his head at the time. If this bridge was going to be the crowning achievement of his career, was his ego driving him beyond the boundaries of engineering knowledge and practice? Well, we can only speculate. And the one piece of speculation I really like relates to a bridge that was built in the past and how that may have affected Cooper's thinking when he came to working on Quebec. And you'll see from all this that the cause of this failure in Quebec is really all down to human factors. So, with that in mind, here's a wonderful piece of speculation. If you want to blame anything for the decisions that Cooper was making, you might as well blame the Fort Bridge in Scotland. Now, this bridge you've almost certainly seen photographs of. It's the red cantilever bridge that crosses the Firth of Fort in Scotland, and it's really iconic looking. And just like Quebec, as we've said, it's also a cantilever bridge. Now, this bridge was opened in 1890, so 10 years before construction started on Quebec. And it was a conservatively designed bridge. And it was designed so it really, really couldn't fail. And this was because of the the Tay Bridge collapse in 1879. There was just no way bridge engineers at that time wanted to repeat the disaster. So the Fort Bridge was bulky. It had big members to ensure it was strong enough. So there were lots of good reasons for this conservative design. But one person in particular had a different view of the Fort Bridge. That particular person was called Theodore Cooper. He described the Fort Bridge as, quote, the clumsiest structure ever designed by man, the most awkward piece of engineering, in my opinion, that was ever constructed, unquote. And then he goes on to state that an American could have done it for half the cost. So these sorts of comments give us some insight into Cooper's state of mind when he was planning the Quebec Bridge some years later. Of course, this really is speculation, but it does give us some insight. So firstly, we know that Cooper believed the Fort Bridge was clumsy and awkward, and that he could have built it for half the cost. Now, 
This attitude certainly seems to have influenced his decision to allow the really high working stresses, because these really high working stresses would have resulted in less chunky-looking members in his bridge. So, it looks like Cooper's solution to the challenge of creating a slender and elegant bridge was simply to jack up the working stresses to give slender members, despite there being no technical precedent to do so. Now, it was in the redesign of the bridge following its collapse that really the extent of Cooper's drive for slender members became evident. Now, look, any design after failure is, is going to be more conservative, but in the case of the Quebec Bridge, the cross-sectional area of some of the members were increased by as much as 150%. 150%. And when the replacement bridge was actually completed in 1917, it was two and a half times heavier than the original design. Two and a half times heavier. So that's the first way Cooper's thinking could have been influenced. The second way that Cooper's thoughts may have been influenced was with respect to the bridge's span. So the span of the Fort Bridge was 521 metres, but the initial design span for the Quebec Bridge was only 488 metres. So the Fort Bridge was longer. Now, in the world of bridge engineering, span length is absolutely everything. Every engineer wants to design a longer bridge than what's came before. So here you have Cooper going to preside over the Quebec Bridge. That's going to be his masterpiece. And it's got a shorter span than the Fort Bridge, a bridge that he's bagged in the past. So what did Cooper do? Well, Cooper simply extended the proposed length of the Quebec Bridge from 488 metres to 549 metres. Now, there may have been some technical arguments for why this was a good thing, but you couldn't imagine Cooper being too disappointed in doing that because it pushed his Quebec Bridge from 488 metres past the length of the Fort Bridge to 549 metres, which meant his Quebec Bridge would be the longest cantilever bridge. And it still is the longest cantilever bridge in the world today. But here's the sting in the tail. The Phoenix Bridge Company calculated the self-weight of the bridge based on the shorter 488 metre span length not the upgraded span length of 549 metres. So this was how they ended up in the situation that the bridge was heavier in real life than it was on paper. You know, Something that simple is what caused the self-weight calculation to be wrong. So now we have this incredible situation where one of the greatest bridges in the world was being built and its technical basis was flawed on so many levels and, and in so many different ways. And the crazy thing is, the bridge was now about to tell all those involved that something was very wrong with it. It's June 1907. About 23 months into construction of the superstructure, a McClure, Cooper's eyes and ears on sight, discovers that a number of the bridge's compression members have mid-point deflections. They're bowing. Now, things shouldn't bow in structural engineering because this bowing suggests that these members are under too much stress. And this bowing was at its worst in some of the compression members on either side of the bridge piers, the members known as the A8L and A89L. Now these members carry some of the largest compression loads in the bridge. So in early June, it was found that the member A9L had a bow of between 1 and 2 millimetres. But later that month, these deflections had grown to 19 millimetres. So McClure notified both Cooper and the Phoenix Bridge Company's design engineer. Now, the Phoenix Bridge Company were of the view that the Boeing was pre-existing, that it was present when the members left the fabrication shop. In other words, they didn't believe these bows were related to in-service stresses. In, in their view, these bows weren't a sign that there was any issue with this bridge. McClure, however, disagreed. Now, he was convinced the Boeing had only appeared after the members were installed, and therefore they were due to in-service stresses. Now, Cooper, he seems to have been confused by the Boeing. 
the possibility that the bridge was overstressed was just simply not considered, you know, which is a point we'll come back to in a little while. But Cooper believed that the Boeing may have been in these members prior to installation, so the same view as the Phoenix Bridge Company, but he also thought that the members may have been impacted or struck or hit by other members when they're being lifted into position during construction. So he asked McClure to go and check for evidence of such impact on these members. McClure found none. And the cause of this Boeing remained unresolved. But by late August 1907, there was no doubt that an issue existed. The bow in the A9L member had increased from 19 millimeters to 57 millimeters. Now, what happened after this was discovered happened very, very quickly. And at this point in the construction, the cantilevered arm of the bridge was about 223 meters long and it was hanging over the St. Lawrence River. So, hanging there, supporting itself, 223 metres long. And at this point, there was 17,000 tonne of steel sitting out over that river. So, on the morning of the 27th of August, 1907, a foreman noticed a significant bowing and immediately suspended construction. The following day, the 28th of August, McClure caught the 1pm train to New York to discuss the matter personally with Cooper. And when Cooper arrived at his office at 11am the following morning, 29th of August, he found McClure sitting waiting for him. Now you can imagine what would have ran through Cooper's head when he saw McClure sitting at his office. And he would have got a pretty big shock and he would have guessed that something was really wrong with the bridge to make McClure make the journey down to him. So they both had a discussion and Cooper finally agreed something was wrong with the bridge. Now, he sent a message to the Phoenix Bridge Company in Felixville stating that no further load was to be added to the bridge until the situation had been resolved. Now this was following the correct chain of communication. It was the Phoenix Bridge Company's job to communicate with the site. Now Cooper also mentioned that he was sending McClure out to Phoenixville that evening so they could talk and sort out this issue. So this is lunchtime on the 29th of August. And at this point both Cooper and McClure believe that no work has taken place on the bridge since two days previously on the morning of the 27th. And that's, of course, when work was suspended. So no work between the morning of the 27th and lunchtime of the 29th. But both Cooper and McClure were wrong. On the morning of the 28th, the day after work had stopped, and the same day McClure was catching his train to New York, the foreman who stopped work changed his mind and recommenced work. Now, the reason he changed his mind was because he was afraid the prolonged delays at the stoppages would decrease the morale on site. And then he was afraid that if that happened, workers would start to leave the job. So he would lose productivity and that would be his fault. So he got in touch with the Phoenix Bridge Company and they again assured him that they believed the member Boeing had occurred prior to installation and wasn't a problem. And work had resumed. So when Cooper's message to cease construction arrived at the office in Phoenixville at 1.15pm on the 29th of August, work had been proceeding since the previous morning. Now this message was ignored because the principal engineer was out. Then he returned at 3pm and despite being aware that work was still going on on site, he didn't pass the cease construction message back to the site. He simply waited for McClure to arrive that evening, which was going to be around 5.15pm. Now, there was one chance left to stop work, and that was before McClure was going to set out to see the Phoenix Bridge Company that evening, he told Cooper he'd send the same cease construction message directly to the site. So there was still a chance the site would get word to cease construction. But McClure never sent the message. Work continued on site. McClure arrived in Phoenixville that evening at around 5.15pm and he met with the Phoenix Bridge Company. They discussed the issue and it was decided to defer a decision to the following morning. The worker's shift for that evening was almost over. Why make a decision this evening when we can think about it, make a decision in the morning? But that decision came too late. At 5.30pm that evening, 
while the meeting in Phoenixville was wrapping up, the critical A9L member buckled. So this was the member with the 157mm bow. And once it buckled, it started the progressive collapse of the southern arm of the bridge. It started the progressive collapse of 17,000 tonne of steel into the St. Lawrence River. It took the bridge 15 seconds to collapse. You just think about how long that is if you were standing watching it. The noise of the collapse was heard over 10 kilometres away in Quebec City. There were 86 workers on the span at the time of collapse. The shift was almost over. Only 11 of those 86 workers would survive. And they wouldn't be able to recover the bodies of some of the 75 workers that were on the bridge at the time. Now the Royal Commission investigation into the collapse would conclude that the failure of the member was not related to detailing, fabrication or material quality. It was due to defective design. For all the reasons we've discussed earlier. For all the decisions that Cooper made with respect to the design of this bridge. And when things really started to go wrong, a lot of the key people weren't near the bridge. Cooper was over 800 kilometres away in New York and never visited the site once the construction of the superstructure began. Phoenix's key engineers were located in Phoenixville and the company's chief engineer, he later admitted that he never actually saw the critical board members. So this left McClure, Cooper's site inspector, in the pretty tough position of trying to manage and understand this unfolding situation. So this was a project team that looked good on paper, but the practical reality was very different. The Royal Commission would say this, Quote, it was clear that on that day the greatest bridge in the world was being built without there being a single man within reach who by experience, knowledge and ability was competent to deal with the crisis. Unquote. And we see this extraordinary situation where the bridge members are bowing. The bridge is actually telling the engineers that something's wrong with it, that it's overstressed and the designers and Cooper simply aren't listening. And when the members start bowing, both Cooper and the Phoenix Bridge Company made the implicit assumption that the bridge's design was sound. And once they made this assumption, the evidence of the stress was shoehorned into these other alternate theories like the pre-existing bowing theory. None of them considered an error in design. And it was only really when it was too late when Cooper decided something was wrong with his bridge did the design come under scrutiny. But by that stage, it it was really too late to save the bridge. And we see something here in play that we see in many failures. Those involved simply didn't believe that such a massive bridge could actually collapse. So take the foreman. He could get his head around the fact that morale on site could drop and he could lose productivity and that would be his fault. But he couldn't imagine these Boeing members could actually collapse this massive bridge. That was just too big to think about. There's a wonderful line by James Reason who writes a lot about human factors and failure. And he says that, quote, Accidents do not occur because people gamble and lose. They occur because people do not believe that the accident that is about to happen is at all possible. Unquote. And you can go a little further. There's a great quote from Thomas Schilling, a Nobel Prize winning economist, and he said, quote, There is a tendency in our planning to confuse the unfamiliar with the improbable. The contingency we have not considered seriously looks strange, and what looks strange is thought improbable and what is improbable need not be considered seriously. Unquote. The failure of this bridge seemed unlikely, and that possibility was simply not seriously considered. And this failure teaches us something really important about individuals. 
innovative projects that rely on the judgment of just one individual is not a good idea. So with Quebec, we see this crazy situation develop where Cooper's reputation, far from making the project safer, paradoxically puts it at greater risk. So his insistence on longer span and high working stresses looked like they were based on concerns of legacy, not on sound engineering judgment. And his refusal to submit to independent checks, along with the sort of unquestioning environment his reputation created, resulted in his decisions going unchallenged. The Royal Commission would actually conclude that Cooper's very presence on this project created a false feeling of security. And the story of the Quebec Bridge doesn't unfortunately end there. A replacement bridge was designed and during its construction, when they were lifting up the central span of the bridge, they had another incident. A lift bearing failed and this 195 metre long, 4,500 tonne central span fell a height of 46 metres into the river. This killed another 13 people. So for me, the collapse of the Quebec Bridge is one of the most important failures that we have in structural engineering. It really shows us that we as humans can really screw things up and cause failures. And we as engineers should all know this story. We should understand a little better that we humans make bad, bad decisions. And we make these decisions sometimes for the best possible reasons and the worst possible reasons. And we need to understand this so we can make sure these sort of failures never happen again. And this brings us right back to where we began right back to the story of Susan Jakes and the ceremony she attended. Now the ceremony she attended is known as the ritual of the calling of an engineer and it's a uniquely Canadian thing. And the first of these ceremonies was held in 1925 and they are said to have been at least in part a response to the collapses of the Quebec Bridge. And in the ceremony that Susan attended she would have recited an obligation which is like an oath. And this obligation is a similar sort of thing to the Hippocratic Oath taken by doctors, you know, the one they, where they say they will do no harm. And this obligation for the engineers was written by Rudyard Kipling, the same Kipling who wrote The Jungle Book and Kim. And he was always a big fan of engineers because of his time in India, where he saw the transformative role engineers played in the subcontinent in terms of building railways and bridges. And when Susan recited this obligation, she said it was a stark reality check on what it meant to be an engineer and the responsibilities you have to society as a whole. So I'm going to be respectful to the wording of the obligation, so I'm not going to read it out, but it talks about how you as an engineer will not tolerate bad workmanship or faulty materials. It talks about how you'll strive to do good work, about how you won't succumb to professional jealousy. And it talks about how you'll return to this obligation for guidance when you're weary and weak. And in the end, it says you will abide by this obligation upon your honour and cold iron. So honour makes sense, but what's this cold iron thing? Well, at this ceremony, you're also presented with what's called the iron ring. Now, you wear this ring on the pinky finger of your working hand. And the story, which is almost certainly not true, is that some of the early iron rings were made from the wreckage of the Quebec Bridge. And this ring is not jewellery. It's to remind you that you're an engineer and you took this obligation. And as you work as an engineer, this ring on your pinky finger will tap and scrape along the desk. And it will do so as a constant reminder that despite all of the prescriptive design codes we now have, despite all the sophisticated computer modeling software we use, despite BIM, despite all the modern materials we now use, your primary role as an engineer is very simple. It's to prevent failure. It's to prevent another Quebec bridge. <laughs>